Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, when you're a woman and you're complaining about bias historically, like nobody gave you the time of day, right? Or they brushed it under the rug or they made you sign, you know, like the Google employees were complaining about, they all signed the arbitration agreement so that they literally couldn't Mm -hmm. talk about how they were treated. I mean, it's, so it's still going on to this day. And this is why employees are kind of finding their voice and saying, you know, this is not, this is not okay because we can't change the system if we can't talk about what's happening to us. And we can't find each other and we can't organize in a community and we can't influence our employer. I mean, at some point, employers can only, you know, crank down on people for so long before it becomes an issue of retention and, you know, being able to have the best and brightest and have the best products and services. And, you know, I think the bottom line is going to suffer is suffering in toxic cultures. The price is going to become too great. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jennifer, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, you're actually back here for a second time. Uh, and I think anytime we have somebody back for a second time, it's always uh, a testament to the impact that they had on, on you know my thinking and our audience the first time. Uh, you have a new book out, uh, which we will get into. But before we get into that, um, I think I want to start with what I think is a very relevant question, given the subject matter of the book. And that is, what is the very first job that you ever had? And <laughs> what did you learn from that job? And how what impact did it have uh, on your life going forward? Oh, that's so interesting because I've been thinking a lot about it. I was a temp actually um, in offices. So I literally got the coffee and answered the phones and there were no computers in those days. Uh, And I brought the papers in and basically was the receptionist in in an office building. And I, I actually, part of me as a young woman aspired to be this big businesswoman someday, I think, even though I didn't have a lot of those role models. I envisioned myself. I clearly had seen enough movies. And I, mm-hmm. so I put on my, my, remember it was the 80s. So it was like the duck ties and the shoulder pads and the, you know, the outfits. <laughs> and yeah. I trooped off to my work and I had my lunch every day with me. And I just felt like such an adult. And, mm-hmm. you know, looking back, I know it sounds really dry and like something most people wouldn't want to do. But the exposure, I think that it gave me to understand how do organizations work? You know, what does mm-hmm. professionalism look like? How do people how do you receive clients? How do you, you know, get people things on time that they need and, Mm. and present sort of a professional image to every caller or every guest? You know, it was, I think it was very formative for me. So I know it sounds like, and it was boring and believe me, you know, the time ticked by pretty slowly on some afternoons and it definitely was not 
not what I would ultimately want to be doing, but I'd say the admin skills that you need in life, you know, those get you through your twenties. You know, if you know how to do Excel and email, you know how to write and you're professional. I mean, that's gosh, that's 80% of what you need. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know from having, uh, Pat, yeah, you had our past conversation that you're you're gay and you came out to your parents. I know we talked about that last time, and I think that uh, what I wonder is is how that um, has shaped sort of the work that you do and the choices that you've made with your career, uh, because it seems like those two are very intertwined. Uh, yes, yes. So wanting to be that uh, businesswoman about town uh, is interesting when you when you come out, you're like, okay, is this going to really hurt my ability to be you know, anything I really want to be and to follow any path that occurs to me. So I think honestly, I opted for the arts and for nonprofit work in my twenties mm-hmm. pretty heavily because I, I instinctively knew I'd be more accepted in those worlds. And I'd come out when I was 22. Yeah. And so, um, it wasn't just a passion for me actually, cause it also is right. I'm an, I'm an activist to this day and I'm also, I was a musician for years. And so the arts made sense too, but, um, you know, who knows what I might have been and where I might have steered myself if I hadn't felt like, well, okay, so all these doors are now like maybe really close to me. You know, where can I go where I could find my people and mm-hmm. be myself? Um, and I think even at that early age, I sensed, you know, which industries and kinds of jobs wouldn't really get me and mm-hmm. where it would be not only an afterthought, but honestly something that you just don't talk about. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I think I kind of self-selected into some, some industries and I'm so glad I did. I mean, I had, I worked for some incredible organizations in my twenties. Um, I cut my activist teeth and community organizing teeth. Um, I found myself in a great nonprofit for years. Um, and then of course I sought training as an opera singer, um, in my later twenties. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, you know, theoretically full of LGBTQ people. However, there weren't any gay women per yeah. se that I knew of that were very out. So, you know, perceptions, reality, there might, they might've been there, but they weren't, they were certainly pitching themselves as the, you know, the love interest on stage. And yeah. that can create some interesting casting challenges, uh-huh. <laughs> it, not in, not in real terms, but in the minds of casting directors and people who I think are limited probably back in those days, especially by like sort of what they know about who you are and, mm. you know, all those things. So it was, it was, it was tricky and I was closeted as a performer. Um, mm-hmm. Sure except to my friends. Well, I remember now I very distinctly remember the, the story about you, you losing your voice for an extended period of time yes. uh, and how you, that had an impact on the way that you communicated with people. Um, I actually do want to revisit that, but with a, a very different context. Uh, but what did you learn from being a musician in terms of habits, in terms of practice, in terms of performance, in terms of how to get better at something? Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, I, yeah, I was a musician since I was five years old. So it, I think it literally wired my brain, you know, mm-hmm. and I had stage parents. They pushed me really hard. I was competing in Mozart concertos competitions when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, <laughs> uh, which I still can't believe. Uh, but, but the, the fearlessness I think is the biggest thing, which is throw me on a stage and I'll just mm-hmm. make it work. And that's yeah. really held, held me in good stead, particularly as a keynote or now where I, I never get afraid. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just don't even have it in me anymore. I get, what I get is that kind of excitement, which is cool, um, adrenaline and, and sort of a hopefulness and an eagerness to see what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. I, so I tap into that all the time, but the, so the, the bravery, the resilience, of course. So when you're auditioning constantly and getting rejections, um, 
you've got to enjoy the process because the mm-hmm. destination most often is not going to be what you want. And so yeah. you've got to just enjoy the challenge of, I guess we call it now in the business world, failing forward, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and also not taking it personally, you know, just moving on, you know, having that in, in, inside innate confidence that you are good, that you have something to offer and that, you know, your job is really to find your place in the world um, mm-hmm. and, you know, find who's going to appreciate that gift. and. Boy, isn't that true for all of us, you know, professionally, yeah. et cetera. Um, yeah. And just so many other things, improvisational ability. Um, I love connecting with audiences. So I always feel like I'm playing with my audiences. It's like if I were one of those rock stars, I, it's like the mosh pit, like jumping out and sort of trusting everybody to move you around. Um, <laughs> you know, you you really do as a speaker now, you, you vibe with your audience and you go on a journey together. and. Yeah. I feel as an extrovert, I love that, you know, because it's like a bath and extroversion. <laughs> uh-huh. like, yeah, there's nothing better than for people that love people, uh, that kind mm-hmm. of feeling of being listened to, being heard, being interacted with, being appreciated and feeling like you've left people with a lot of things to think about, to be inspired about, feeling more hopeful um, and feeling energized. So it's, um, it's very, very much like performing music. It's just to me, to me, the impact and what it's about is so much deeper on an existential level because of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I can totally relate. So one of the reasons I wanted to revisit this whole idea of losing your voice um, is because of the fact that we live in this world with so much noise and people just feel this constant need to fill these sort of blank digital spaces. It's like a digital game of Mad Libs in which, you know, there's no end to it. Uh and I wonder when you look at all of this from the perspective of having lost your voice, uh, how do you how do you think about that and the importance of the time we need for reflection and solitude and and, and you know managing that in the world that we live in today? Gosh, it is it is such a struggle. Uh, well, I've been thinking a lot. What we talk about a lot in the diversity and inclusion conversations is is whose voice has not been heard traditionally. And how can those of us that have had a voice and had a platform take a back seat in a strategic way for strategic reasons to make sure sometimes, and it's literal reasons, like we are giving our seat to somebody on a panel, say, um, mm-hmm. saying, you know, the world doesn't need to hear from me. Um, I, I, the world hears from me all the time. So my question always is, who does the world need to hear from? That's not me. And how can I use whatever I have, whatever assets I have to elevate that voice, to elevate that story to whatever credibility I've built? How can I lend it to or put it behind someone? And -hmm. it's not a public act. Often it's I and I should do it more publicly, actually, but it's very private for me. And so it's okay to me to be invisible um, as long as I'm uplifting and elevating the stories that I think that need to be told. And, and it's very interesting coming from many places of privilege as I do. This is such an important thing that I, the second book is about, you know, which yeah. is this, Hey, Hey, your story matters. And let's, let's do some work on your diversity story. We all have experienced pain of exclusion, but we've all, we all have privileges, um, mm-hmm. all of us. And the question is, yeah. you know, what do you do with those? And when, when do you need to be heard? And when do you really need to step back and enable something? And I think that that's, yeah. So I think that's what I would like to see more of, and um, particularly on the part of folks with a lot of privilege historically who sort of automatically get 
the voice, the share of voice. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to, to privilege because I, I, I know you had a very specific section in your book about it, which I, I remember that caught my attention. Uh, there's one thing that I wonder, and, and this is you know out of my own curiosity, uh, what misperceptions or what do you think that those of us who are straight don't understand about the difficulties that people who are uh, in the LGBTQ community face when it comes to, you know, being included. And also, I mean, you mentioned that you said that there were a certain set of career paths that you kind of knew were going to be much more receptive to you. Uh, so what do, like, what do we not understand uh, for those of us who are straight? What misperceptions do we have about this? Uh, uh, let's see. I think that, well, many people think since gay marriage became the law of the land, that mm-hmm. our work was over. You know, it's kind of like, oh, we had a black president and therefore we're not a racist <laughs> country. Uh, yeah. And so it, I think we want to we want to believe we're done with certain things way prematurely. And uh, we're destined to repeat these lessons until we learn we learn them. Right. And we fix mm-hmm. them. And so the startling statistic that most straight people are um, don't know is that 50 percent of LGBTQ people are closeted in the workplace. So you've got, and, and, you know, arguably the other stat is, is to say that almost a fifth of the workforce between ages of 18 and 34 identify as somehow non-binary and somehow not straight. So 20%, so a fifth of people Mm -hmm. under 34. So, you know, you take this information and you put it together and you say, wow, so a fifth of our workforce identifies as not straight and not cisgender. So somewhere on the spectrum. And half of people who identify like that as that are not out in the workplace. Wow. Like we have a major engagement problem. We have, you know, what can I do about that? And that those, and I, I love that aha moment to say, wow, I, I was taking that comfort level for granted. And this is the, this is the very definition of privilege. I think when we walk through the world, we see it through our lens and, if we're comfortable, we assume everybody else is comfortable. And that's yeah. such a fundamental thing that I, I really advise managers and leaders as they position themselves and their skill sets for the future, and they mm-hmm. try to shift their mindset. This is one of the biggest shifts people have to make, which is that the world, it might have felt one way for you, and it does not feel that way for others. And the, the headwinds are very real. And so the question becomes, how will you educate yourself about the LGBTQ experience? How will you think about um, shifting your language to be more inclusive of that community? How will you uh, look at the people you hang out with and the people you mentor, or perhaps the way you build teams if you're hiring people? You know, are you projecting a place around you that's um, an LGBTQ positive place? And often people will say to me, "Well, I feel like I'm tokenizing people, or I feel awkward, or I don't know what to say, or I don't know how to, I don't know how to start." That conversation about that I am and I, I am an inclusive person and it's important to me, and so honestly, that's where I spend a lot of time is sort of role playing back and forth with leaders to kind of give them the language and then to say, hey, you know, you're not going to say it perfectly. It may feel really awkward. Why don't you talk about how awkward it is? You know, why don't why don't mm-hmm. you say like, here's me learning. This is me, you know, wanting to say the right thing and wanting to send the right signal. And, um, but admitting there's so much that I don't know. And it seems so difficult for humans to <laughs> admit these things. Yeah. Um, so that, that is my wish. And that all of that applies, not just for LGBTQ people, but anyone, if you are in a majority, um, it, this applies for anyone who's been underrepresented around you, whether mm-hmm. you're on a church board, on a team in a workplace, in a nonprofit, believe me, nonprofits have 
diversity issues too, even if they have like an incredible mission. Um, so there's no organization that, that large or small that doesn't, I think, struggle with this exact question. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I want to get into the, the meat of, of this whole idea of being an inclusive leader and what prompted this conversation and what uh, I think was interesting was when Cher reached out to me, she paid very close attention to a lot of the things that I had said in a conversation with uh, Desiree Attaway, where we were talking about, you know, the intersections of race, class, culture, and gender uh, in the United States. And it was, it was really eye-opening to hear this, you know, from the experience of a black woman growing up in the 60s. But I, I think the thing that really piqued my attention uh, about what Cher said when she pitched you to come back was this whole idea of large-scale systems change. And this is something that has been on my mind lately, particularly because I think about it in the context of education uh, and, and how you know large-scale systems change. Like, is that even possible from within inside a system, or does it take somebody from the outside to change it? You know, whether it be the eight-hour workday or the education system. And, and increasingly, my answer keeps leading me to the to know. Uh, so I wonder, you know, how that ties into this whole idea of inclusion. Mm. Well, as a consultant, you know, my answer partially is that a powerful like third party voice mm. is, is a great instigator for change. Yeah. It's a great support for change. Um, I often tell my internal clients, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and they... And they are, and yet they have these huge jobs, right? To drive diversity and inclusion, right? Drive the culture, really own that for like sometimes tens of thousands of people mm -hmm. and often under-resourced and sometimes even new in the job yeah. because a lot of these positions are getting created for the first time and people are in them for the first time themselves. So it's just this, to me, it's a, it's a very complex and challenging role as it is. And to be under-resourced and like not sitting, for example, on the C-suite, because a lot of us, these positions should be sitting on the C-suite and, and reporting right to the CEO mm -hmm. in an optimal world, because that gives you all the power and the imprimatur of authority, which yeah. is what you need to create change. But a lot of us get buried in the org. You know, we aren't in that room. And, um, and not only that, many people who are leading diversity are themselves in marginalized identities yeah. and sometimes multiple marginalized identities. So, so all of this, um, taken together and then to have all eyes look to somebody who has the job mm -hmm. of steering the ship, uh, which is, it's just not realistic. One person, a small group, very difficult to create that systems change. And even with me on the outside supporting my team and I, being their partners, being their advisors, you know, being their arms and legs, which often we are, um, it is it is indeed difficult to shift an entire culture. So um, it's 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 um, somebody's got to do it though, and it does start in a way. It does start with kind of lining up your champions, which yeah. will be few and far between. But it's really skillfully managing your stakeholders, lining those folks up you know, writing comms in a very intentional way, making sure that the executive suite is involved and, you know, sh you know, demonstrating leadership. Now, whether they are sort of on a very personal level leading or not, um, you know, you can prop people up until they do that, <laughs> until they're ready to do that. I always think of us as like training wheels for leaders, like until they find their voice, until they can say LGBTQ plus without stumbling over the acronym mm -hmm. or creating an awkward situation. Yeah. Um, you know, you're there to really work through the talking points and review the emails. I mean, literally that's some of the work we do. And oh. I don't know it, you can look at it as very frustrating that change isn't happening faster, or you can say, 
why don't these executives get this? Like, why are we having to teach this? And there's a lot of frustration about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, have you been living under a rock? Like, <laughs> how come you don't know how to talk about these things? Yeah. And aren't you reading the news? And like, and by the way, aren't you worried your company is going to be the next one in social media mm-hmm. and like being called out? I mean, so there's a lot of stuff to be afraid of. Um, so, it, but it, I like to look at it and I think our team is super gratified to be, to have such an important role <laughs> yeah. to be able to craft something for a leader to say that we know is going to hit the mark. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to be heard by thousands is, is a pretty cool experience. Yeah. I have to say. So in the book, you, I, um, identified four uh, what you call diversity dimensions, appearance, affiliation, advocacy, and association. Can you, uh, expand on those and explain what those are and how they play a role? Sure thing. So that, yeah, that refers to the covering model, which was originated by a report coming out of Deloitte. And it was Kenji Yoshino and Christy Smith, who have since since moved on. But I love their research. And it really resonates with the audience as I speak to. Uh, We all all cover, which means we minimize or downplay our known stigmatized identities. And so we think of ourselves, if we think of ourselves like icebergs, we keep 90% of really who we are uh, that we think is not going to be accepted under the waterline. And then we choose kind of a sanitized version of who we are with that 10% that's visible. Um, and so the, the things you just mentioned are the ways in which we cover, which means that downplaying, right? That minimizing. So it's it, for LGBT people, it might mean people know you're gay, but you don't talk about it. Like you don't make it a big deal. Mm-hmm. You don't, you, know, you don't join conversations about the pride plan for the company, you know, or you don't, you just avoid using pronouns, you know, when people ask you who you spent your weekend with. So we are, we in the, our community in particular are masters at, at like modifying our appearance, who we're seen with in hallways, what we, what we say something about, or we remain silent about, which is advocacy based covering, um, who we're affiliated with. And we, we distance ourselves from those things if we view that those are going to hurt us. Um, and the interesting thing about the report, it's called Uncovering Talent, is, is so many of us know what the experience of covering is. We're all doing it, including, by the way, you know, men who identify as straight and white in the report. And that's always like the big reveal in my keynotes when I show that part of the research. People just, they, they're very uncomfortable or they laugh. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's clearly a new thought because we we have historically thought that that this is kind of an issue for women and people of color and lgbt people and people with disabilities and it has been but it's but it's being experienced on a much more human level and i think we all know what it's like to not bring our full selves to work mm-hmm. it just means different things to different people and so i um i just i live for those moments honestly when when that straight male white executive stands up and says like, I'll share a story, Mm. Jennifer, you know, and they get very vulnerable. Um, it's, it's really moving and it's very significant that they're doing that. I mean, on many levels, like nobody likes to be vulnerable. Uh, leaders don't like to be vulnerable particularly. Um, and it's definitely against that sort of man box code that runs corporate America. Mm. (laughs) So, and I, I had a guest on Mark Green who wrote the little me too book for men. Mm -hmm. I had him on my podcast and boy, that is, that book is really educational about the man box, but it's, it permeates the workplace and it's harmful for men too. It's not, it is not, it does not at all let men breathe, Mm. you know, and be authentic leaders and bring their full selves to work either. Like it's bad for all of us. And so I think we have to tackle this in a much bigger way. 
One of the things you said uh, very early on, because what if instead of hiding our truth, we could bring our full selves to work without feeling like a liability and empower others to be the same? And that is so much easier said than done, I think, that uh, you, I think that, you know, you go into a workplace and you're so mindful of everything. I mean, look here, even at this point, even as somebody who runs a business, the moment that I got a book deal with a publisher, the moment I signed with a speaking agent, suddenly I, I started to think on a much like sort of broader level of, okay, wait a minute, the implications of my behavior are far broader than they used to be because they don't just affect me, they impact other people. And, you know, I know that, okay, there are probably things where I will hold back and play it safe uh, because you know, my behavior is a reflection on all of those people as well. So how do you have those things coexist and at the same time bring your full self to work, I guess is really where I'm going with it. I think I know what you mean. Um, it's almost like admitting, like when you're, when you're uncertain or admitting weakness, um, when, particularly when you're a public yeah. figure and particularly when you're, when you've, I think your question is about that you do, you have a lot of platform and people listen to you and how, how do you, how do you yeah, be vulnerable? I, mean, I, I will tell um, things to my closest friends and say things you know, behind closed doors that I would never say behind the microphone. I know. I know. It's true. I do the same thing. It's kind of the the, the dirty little secret of being somebody who's really yeah. visible. Um, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I thought about actually writing an anonymous uh-huh. book, you know, pro tip about having run and built this company that I run for 13 years and all the mistakes I've made. And they're very embarrassing mistakes. I mean, they're really, and they were very painful and they were very expensive and devastating. I mean, devastating. So, um, and, and I didn't feel warned um, as a woman entrepreneur kind of coming up through the ranks, not having gone through it before. I didn't know what to look out for. I didn't know how to protect myself, right? And, and I, yet I really, it's, it's sort of been burning a hole in me that I need to tell my story, that part of mm-hmm. my story. Because like, if I can save somebody the pain and the loss and the difficulties and the angst and the stress, um, you know, and all of, gosh, I had like physical symptoms from being so Mm -hmm. stressed, um, at some points with this company. And, uh, I, I would, I think it's my duty to do that. And I haven't quite figured out how do I integrate that rawness with my professional brand and with my brand as a CEO, who's running a consulting company, where we're advising huge, like Fortune 50 mm-hmm. brands, you know, I, I think it's very difficult. And um, the other weird thing is, I'm such an activist um, in my heart, and I really pull my punches mm-hmm. in social media about what I really mm-hmm. think and how, honestly, how angry yeah. I am about some of the decisions that are happening in business. And but when those are your clients, it creates a yeah. very <laughs> interesting. Uh, threading the needle dynamic. Um, and, and when you're speaking about business in general and your frustrations about business, you have to really be careful because you're also, in my case, you're the person who's trying to, to invite business to be better, to do better, mm-hmm. to do more. And you don't want to lead down. You, I never like to go through the shaming route and the calling out route. It is not mm-hmm. my style. Um, and so that would never be the way I would create change. I know there's other people who do and they use their voice mm-hmm. that way. Uh, but it, it is really tricky to navigate when at the same time, you have to sit there in these rooms with these clients and you know that they're human and they're making mistakes and they're good people and they're trying and they're a part of something that's unfortunate or they're part of, you know, something that happened in one part of their business, but it doesn't speak to their whole mm-hmm. company. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of the banks is my big and I will not name the bank. They're a big client of ours, <laughs> been in the news a lot. 
bad behavior, bad decisions, you know, and yet I do this beautiful, innovative um, training in another part of the company, mm-hmm. same company. And, and I see all of those leaders and I feel, I feel so proud yeah. of them. And so, you know, these, these, these companies are enormous. There's just no, when people are like, which companies get it? I refuse to ask the answer uh-huh. the question. It's just impossible yeah. to say. Um, although we do love, we do love Gillette and the, the kinds of moves that some of the brands have been making mm-hmm. to take on like toxic masculinity and stuff. I literally cried when I watched that ad. I mean, just, it was, it, it is, it feels so courageous to see what brands, some of the brands are doing and using their yeah. voice. It's really cool. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, you know, we've been looking at this through the lens of, of sexual orientation. What role does race play in all of this? Uh, I wonder, and, you know, I have to ask this as, as an Indian American male, uh, I wonder about this. Yeah, so uh, I talk about intersectionality a lot in my keynotes, and I ask her show of hands, how many, pe- how many people know what I mean by this word? Often, I don't get a lot of hands. And so I back up and I define it as, as Kimberly Crenshaw defined it, of course, um, who, tra- who, was, who, who endeavored to, to clarify that women's experience is not a monolith. White women are having a different experience than women of color, than a queer woman of color you know, and we can keep kind of adding intersections. And so her message is they, that these, these identities overlap and they kind of compound in terms of bias, in terms of stereotyping, in terms of how you feel when you walk in the room and all the energy that you're putting towards, is it my blackness that's, you know, triggering that comment? Is it my, the fact that I'm a woman and it's an all male team? You know, is it the fact that I'm, queer, but I'm never going to talk about that because they can barely deal with me not being white, you know, or not being a man. And so many, many people in the workforce, which is, you know, way more diverse in the bottom half, as we know, than the top half, um, many up and coming leaders share, you know, that they're constantly navigating uh, not only their gender, but their race and their ethnicity and their, you know, LGBTQ identity. And many other things and some things they can hide and some things they can't. And so when you walk around, you're constantly, you're kind of hearing these potential microaggressions. You're wondering, you know, where do I stand vis-a-vis people I work with, this company? And um, it is, it is incredibly still really difficult for, I think, non-white leaders to navigate a, a white dominated workplace particularly dominated at the top, right? And I think, and I don't blame them, and it was my story as well, that a lot of us just depart. We just give up and we disconnect. Uh-huh. And you either then you either rest in place in a job, but you're really not giving any of that discretionary effort that you could be giving, right? When you're really, really, you feel aligned, you feel seen and heard, you're giving that extra whatever, you know, you know, when the job feels like that. So you're opting out, you're resting in place, you're not really there. And you're looking for another role Mm -hmm. (laughs) in another company. Um, And then you quit and become an entrepreneur. And honestly, where you can call your own shots and you can be yourself. And I I definitely feel that was my solution. Mm -hmm. And I'm a white person, you know, in a, in what was, I was in fashion, was definitely a white dominated workplace. And so I made that choice because and it wasn't just being LGBTQ, honestly. I, I think my creativity was going to get squashed. Mm-hmm. And I, I just saw the writing on the wall and I said, I, I just don't know if this is going to hold me. Um, I need to create better things and be less encumbered. And, you know, in order to express myself and find my voice, I, I can't be told what my voice should be. And so the model just didn't work to be somebody's employee and have a boss. Um, and I had the privilege, by the way, to make that choice. And I really want to make that yeah. point. You know, economically, a lot of us are stuck in corporate roles. If we can get corporate roles, I mean, a lot of us are hourly workers, mm-hmm. right? And you know, we we're tenuous every single day. You know, we we have no guarantees, um, and we may be in a really hostile environment where we we don't um, feel 
seen and heard and valued. So, so it depends kind of, you know, what industry and sector you're looking in, but, um, people of color are particularly struggling with certain headwinds. Uh And I think that race is the third rail that nobody wants to talk about in workplaces. Mm. Um, we are so far from talking about the impact of white dom. Even saying the word white, yeah. I will have clients say, "I don't want you to say that word in your uh-huh. keynote." <laughs> yeah, and and I'll say, "Okay." So, <laughs> uh, but it's important in a way that we normalize the fact that white people have been wandering around and thinking we don't really have a voice because, like, the cult- our culture is everywhere, right. and therefore we sort of have no culture, and there's no norms and therefore we don't own the norms and we don't own the harmfulness of the norms Mm -hmm. which is that's the piece right (laughs) we need to we all have like there's harmful behaviors and horrible exclusionary behaviors in every culture it's not just white culture Mm -hmm. but white culture happens to you know have this dominant place and it informs everybody's experience and and therefore everybody that's not in that culture feels every day like you know, they're walking around, they don't see anyone that looks like them. They don't see a senior leader that has their story or their identity. And, um, it's a real problem. And companies are like, how do we fix this tomorrow? And I'm like, Oh, I have bad news for you. You cannot flip a switch uh-huh. and change your senior leadership, you know, your masthead, you know, it's just, and if you do flip a switch, it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. So please don't, don't do that. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, to me, it's, it's funny to hear this from your perspective, because I think there's also this other flip side of it as an Indian person who thinks that white people are way too worried about how racist they're appearing. <laughs> I, like, I remember. I, oh, really? I did it. Well, really- I, I, and this, I'll share a story that really struck me as I thought was really kind of ridiculous. I remember uh, this was my previous speakers where I did a TEDx talk. And they emailed back and they complained that the kids were, you know, the pictures of the kids at the beginning of the talk were all pictures of white kids in the stock photos. I was like, well, doesn't the fact that an Indian guy is giving the talk kind of compensate for that? That wouldn't have occurred to me. Yeah. I would never have thought, yeah. think, oh, I need to make these pictures more ethnically diverse. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah there's, um, so there's that hypersensitivity going on. Yeah right now. Uh, and I think it's part of the call out culture that's, that's developed right mm-hmm. on social media and the number of, particularly it's funny you use that example. It, 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 it happens when marketing collateral just doesn't hit the right note yeah. with people. And, um, I've seen it happen sort of some of my white friends who are entrepreneurs who want to send a strong message of embracing and seeking yeah. more diversity, both in their hiring practices and in their sort of end user, their customer base. Mm-hmm. And, and yet not doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> and then just hearing about it on Twitter and, you know, I mean, just a big, big, um, big message yeah. that I've seen happen. Um, and so, so interestingly, yeah, that's a very fascinating story because you would have thought you would be checking that box. <laughs> exactly. And yet <laughs> and they're looking at your your artwork yeah. and saying, just tisk, you need some diversity in your photos. Well, and, you know, I know. <laughs> I've had people email me, you know, about the lack of minorities on the show. And I'm like, do you realize you're a white person emailing a show hosted by an Indian guy complaining yeah. about the diversity? I was like, it, it just to me, and it's funny because I don't think about it that way. Uh it's just something that I'm not aware of for that reason. And, and, you know, the funny thing is even when we're doing a conference, right, we've, when we've planned events, like if you go and look at our, our current event that we're planning, we tend to stack the deck heavy with women. In fact, like I remember, you know, the first, last time we did an event, we hardly had any guys apply in the first three days. It was the strangest Mm. thing. 
but well, I think that we've also had a large variety of female podcast guests, like, and and you know yeah. that is for good reason because they often tend to be really good. And I, I think what's funny is my friend Erica Learmark once I said, you know, I said I don't know what it is, but when our when we have female guests, the show grows. And she said, yeah, that's because we talk to each other. And I remember I thought, okay, yeah. you know what, we need to do an entire month with nothing but women. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what's interesting? Um, little side note on that: I have somebody who helps me transcribe my podcast, yeah. and he said. You know, Jennifer, I've noticed you really speak to men differently than women. Ah. He said, you know, if you just go through your transcript and look at how much you talk, mm. you you and your female guests talk much more egalitarianly. You share the space and the time more, and you end up saying more. And and I was like, that's so interesting. I hadn't noticed it, but I do think when I have men on as guests, they in, they interact with me differently. Uh-huh. It's like it's like they're sort of assuming this expert role mm-hmm. versus a collaborative role, yeah. you know, versus sort of being inclusive of me as the host, which is interesting because I do think, I do think you can, as a guest, you can be inclusive of your host. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, that is an art. I mean, to me, you know, it's, it's, I love a back and forth. I love an organic discussion like we're having today. And right. I love, I love hearing your stories and reacting to them and building on them. And so there is a gendered lens here too, that, um, I, I, I found that interesting and I, I want to challenge myself to, and I want to challenge my male guests, mm-hmm. honestly, to, um, because that, this is part of the growth that I think male leaders have to, they, they've got to know that more and more women are, well, more women than men are graduating from college and advanced degrees. Yeah. They are more, you know, they're more than 50, 50 in the sort of early career times. And then they thin out, thin out, thin out by the time you're 10 years in. Then you start to see the problems that I always see, right, all day long, which is, oh my gosh, we have 15% women and 5% people of color at the director level and up. And everybody's horrified to realize that, <laughs> point it out to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but anyway, I think that this age of female, I don't know if I like the word feminine, but perhaps what women bring stylistically and sort of aptitude wise to the workplace is sorely needed. It's been really out of balance. Yeah. And it's been... And this is why we have these workplaces where Me Too, Me Too situations have continued to persist and not be talked about, right? Because it's this, it's that representation piece is going to really be what what shifts it. Um, but I wanted to address something you just said. You know, when you said that you've got white people criticizing you, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> this is kind of the interesting um, byproduct of allyship. It's kind of this overly enthusiastic, misplaced. <laughs> allyship <laughs> it's like it's it's the white it, it I, acolytes in a way uh-huh. that are doing all their race work their race equity work yeah. and you know hats off to hats off to them it's great and i do the same work i go to the same stuff but um but to call out people who are doing a lot of really good work <laughs> and living the life you are in the skin you're in um and it's same with me i mean i get criticized for being a white somebody who puts herself out there as a white diversity expert yeah. and it's been, and they assume I'm heterosexual by the way too, because you have to kind of dig a little bit uh-huh. to see that about me. So it's much easier to just call me out, you know, and say, well, she's part of the problem. Yeah. Like why is she capitalizing on this? And uh, wow, I, I, it's really hurt. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely struck me to the core um, because I, I think a lot of us are wondering like, where do we fit? Where do we fit in this discussion? When you are white, uh-huh. um, you're either too too assertive and calling people out all day long and trying to get your 
rewards that way and trying to show your allyship that way, but it's kind of misdirected, uh-huh. you know, or you're, or you're sort of told to sit down and shut up. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think this binary age we live in where we just don't know how to be on this topic. And this is what we need to learn. It, uh-huh. You know, it feels awkward and it should. Well, I think it's, it's funny because if you look at stand-up comedians uh, who are minorities or ethnic minorities, they can yeah. get away with things that no white person could ever get away with. Right. And, and, you know, like people always ask about the town of Encinitas and I'm like, yeah, this I live in this place full of white people who all wish they were Indian. They're more Indian than I am. They like go to yoga and they have Sanskrit tattoos and all this crazy shit. And, you know, and it's funny because one person who I've ever made that joke to got really offended. It was a girl that I wanted to date with. And I was like... Okay, this is insane. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, that that makes a really interesting segue to this idea of privilege. You know, you you say that privilege is something that is afforded to certain people by society and in the workplace, often offering them invisible benefits that other people of another status cannot access. And the reason that this struck me in particular was uh, the other night I was watching YouTube and I, I somehow landed on a, a interview, a lengthy interview with Trevor Noah about, uh, and a journalist about uh, his book, Born a Crime. And he actually starts talking about privilege and the fact that he is in a position of privilege. You know, he said, look, I've gotten this golden ticket called The Daily Show. It's like, I'm, you know, it's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And this thing was just handed to me coming from where he did to arrive where he's at. And I even think about privilege in my own life. You know, I grew up the son of a college professor. Uh, There was no question as to whether I was going to get a college education. And there was no question as to whether it was going to be the best damn school I got into. Like if I had gone to heart, gotten into Harvard, my dad would have been like, go to Harvard. Uh, (laughs) There was like these things were never you know a, a question. And I even think that ninety percent of the conversations that we have here on the unmistakable creative are about topics that are only relevant to people who have privilege. Uh, whereas you know if you're struggling just to survive, I think you're not thinking about meaning and purpose and all this other shit that like you know infiltrates the the airwaves of shows like ours and the entire sort of internet and, and circle this that we you know both tend to run in. Oh my gosh, you're so right. Uh, so you have male privilege, you know, you have um, a nice, you know, deep voice. <laughs> you know, there's, there's things about you that are, are normative male as well, mm-hmm. right? Which I might say, um, you are, I, I'm, I think you identify as cisgender, for example. Um, and and what I, I'm not sure I'd call that a privilege because I, 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 one person said to me, Jennifer, you know, I think being trans is like the best gift of my life. I no. mean, I, I feel like that's a, it's been a privilege to live this life and be who I am now. And I was like, I was like, that's so right. You know, and I need to really not assume being cisgender is a privilege. Right. It's, but what it is though, is it means that it's an extra choice that you don't need to make and obsess about and spend money on because your sense of your gender doesn't mismatch with your, the body that you're born. in. So mm. it's a piece that I don't have to carry around and put energy towards and navigate. And so while it, you know, privilege may be the wrong word, it's, um, to me though, privilege is like, what is easier for you? Like that's completely unearned mm-hmm. by you. <laughs> like, and so, uh, and in the gay community, it's interesting because white men in the gay community are the most privileged of our community. Yeah. And sometimes they aren't as inclusion minded as I would want them to be. And it's, I think there's, there's an element of being lazy almost in a marginalized community that, you know, you sort of have your people and you, you know, you have your friends and you run with friends that look like you and you get very comfortable socioeconomically. And that's been mm. so true. Like gay marriage, honestly, 
was a fight that would have, that benefited the most people who were like most affluent. And it was fought by people that I think for, for them, this was right. Like to your point, it was high on the Maslow hierarchy. It's, Mm -hmm. it is, you know, it is getting your needs met, but it is also sort of this higher significant purpose, right. To be recognized by society when others who are trans people of color are literally dealing with safety every single day of their lives and employability. Because it can get, you know, so many of us can still get fired in like 30 states <laughs> for being gay or trans. Um, and so, so every community is sort of the dirty little secret of diverse communities is that, you know, there's racism in the black community. There's homophobia mm-hmm. in the black community. Um, in the gay community, there's misogyny. There's racism there too. You know, all you need to do is like look at dating apps um, yeah. and you'll see, you know, no Asians, no queers, no femmes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty intense. So. And I know gay women have not really, I think, have really struggled to feel included in the movement, interestingly. Mm. Um, and this is inside baseball, but it's true. You know, I, there are parties I don't want to go to. I'm often the only woman in the room at mixers. Um, I, you know, I, I just don't feel, I, I feel with, with each other, we need to do a better job of being allies to each other, even within marginalized communities. And perhaps, perhaps especially in those communities, because this is where we learn. This is where we develop. We should be developing our leadership and our voice and our understanding of ourselves and where we fit and how to use our voice. And if we're lucky enough to be married and have enough income and not walk around and feel that we're in danger every single day for our lives, like, what are you doing with that? You know, and and that's always my call to action for audiences to say, you know, just because you're in a marginalized community doesn't mean you're doing enough. You know, I, I, I've been out for 25 years and, uh, I feel very called these days, mostly as an ally and I'm in the LGBT community, but I need to be a white ally. I need to be an ally to my trans colleagues. I need to be an ally to people of color. Um, anyone, anyone who has less of a voice than I do and struggles to be heard. I view that as my, my job to support them in whatever way that I can. And it, it feels, I love this way of talking about it because audiences, you can literally see them kind of finally click into what can I do? I, because mm-hmm. when they come into my talks, they don't know what they can do. They're literally, they're just stuck. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuckness and a lot of fear and a lot of, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And a lot of, uh, you know, I don't, well, for, I don't want to be alone with a woman in the work context because now mm-hmm. I'm, you know, now I'm paranoid about what might be said, which is a whole yeah very disturbing trend that um i i'm asked about a lot actually and i i'm i'm kind of extra upset about it because those one-on-one relationships particularly in the workplace mm-hmm. are so critical so critical and to have people pulling away from those um is is sort of particularly unfortunate and tragic and and kind of cowardly honestly <laughs> if i could use the word you know it's cowardly yeah. it's like okay so me too doesn't apply to you hopefully you're a decent person hopefully you understand boundaries and you can be solo with a woman who you're mentoring, like, mm. you know, figure it out, figure out how both of you would feel safe, but yeah. don't stop doing it. <clears throat> well, you know, I think it's when you were talking about, you know, uh, people who are gay or LGBTQ, you know, being in a place of privilege, like my mind immediately went to Peter Thiel. And I was thinking, okay, he probably doesn't have any of the problems most people have when it comes to this. Right. Uh, right. Because his socioeconomic status is such that like his peers are basically billionaires and he's sort of, you know, revered in, in, you know, the circles that he runs in. Mm. I know it's kind of like, um, you know, Tony Robbins grew up 
yeah. you know, in pretty bad circumstances. And now he runs around with, you know, Steve Wynn and, you know, which is such a bad person to invoke in a, in a conversation, but that whole, like the whole woman standing up in his, in his audience, you know, and yeah. challenging him about me too. And him sort of invalidating the movement as just a sort of bid for significance. I mean, that might make sense. And I don't know his body of work. So who knows, you know, it might fit in nicely with his messaging. But, um, but it's, it's, I think of his privilege, you know, and if he plays the card of, well, this is how I grew up. So actually, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. But it's like, but show us who you are now, you know, and who's your peer group now. And um, so all of that stuff might be true. And it might always stick with you and be a big part of what shaped you. And, but it needs, it needs to be visible in terms of your humility today. You know, edit to me, mm-hmm. about, and you know, he might turn around and say, "Well, I am helping people. I'm doing so much for the world." And okay, but um, but just yeah. the fact that he wasn't sensitive to the widespreadness of Me Too for so many women in that audience, and it, it was it was particularly sort of that blind spot of, "Well, this isn't my issue, so I don't really need to learn about it, and I don't need to be sensitive mm-hmm. to it." And I, that is really toxic in itself. I mean, I think apathy. Apathy and silence on issues, it, it, it is almost, it's so damaging. And I think that's where we're moving to is, is, are you sitting on the sidelines or are you using your voice to, to clarify things, to teach or to elevate the teachings of others? Like that's kind of what we're moving into. I think, um, I hope in the workplace as the diversity discussion kind of morphs and changes and evolves. And we've got young, young people coming into the workplace. Many of them identify as queer Many of them are brown in some combination, so non-white, multicultural, um, and they have a message for us to say, you know, this workplace is broken and, you know, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't appear to work for me and people that look like me. And, you know, I either am going to be part of the change or I'm going to opt out and go someplace where I'm valued. Yeah. You know, it's uh, one other thing. This particularly struck me because I, I you know, I always felt that um, if I spoke up, uh, I, I risked being fired. You said that you may risk ostracization from uh, your in-group because you're telling the truth and breaking a code that protects them. And that I think that struck me in particular because there was a point at which, uh, you know, I had a really bad job. My first job out of college, I got fired. Then I had an okay job and was like, okay, whatever. So by the time I got to my third job, I was willing to tolerate the most abusive of behavior because it wasn't as bad uh, as the other jobs. Like I had this woman who yelled and screamed at me and it took a year before I finally said, I need to talk to HR uh, about oh. Oh. this. And, you know, and it's amusing because she added me on LinkedIn as a, you know, <laughs> oh, no. a this person, but I, I just, you know, and, and the thing is I didn't in any way at all feel supported by my boss. In fact, I've, that same boss threw me under the bus on his way out the door. So, you know, like, how do we, how do we, how do we speak up when there's the risk that you'll be ostracized or worse yet be fired? Right. And if you don't have the privilege to walk away, then what are your choices? I know, Um, you know, we've got to, well, first of all, anyone can be, you know, create an abusive environment, right? Men and women. And, you know, particular generation of women, we've got to remember grew up, grew up in this like hyper-masculine workplace, right? So they, they mm-hmm. to survive, they needed to ad- adapt and adopt behaviors, right? And then along the way, if you're doing that, you're probably, those are getting like really twisted up, right? Into some, you know, not great, not great leadership habits. And, um, and I've, and, and I have so much compassion for women that have gotten through and stuck in the game. It's been 
really difficult for them and the sacrifices that they've made mm-hmm. to get to the C-suite. I just, I'm in like awe of them <laughs> and the sacrifice and the, the, the battle scars, as I say, that they, that they have that are not visible to us, but we know are there. So we always need to remember that. But um, I think that, look, I think employees have a lot of agency these days to, to speak up and companies are scared of doing the wrong thing and allowing the wrong thing to persist more and more these days. So that might, I don't know how many years ago that was, that story that happened to me. About 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think, honestly, I, I really hope it's changing where employees have a voice, that voice is taken seriously. Um, generationally, this generation is not, I think they have this like um, integrity meter um, and they are very used to using their voice because their parents have really validated them, which I think mm-hmm. you, know, you and I, I don't know if we were validated in the same way. I don't know about you, yeah. but it was sort of like, okay, you're 18 out the door, like figure it out. I'm not going to help you. You don't need any help, uh-huh. you know, uh, go and figure it out. And, you know, these kids were, Hey, my voice matters and I'm important and I need to be treated a certain way and, um, with dignity, with respect. Um, and you know, we could call it entitlement, but I like to think about it differently, which is that they're, they're bringing a transparency and accountability and a want and a need to be treated as, you know, more as humans than beings than we were. I think we were more cogs uh-huh. in the wheel. I think we were uh-huh. left to our own devices. Managers were left to their own devices, God forbid. And so, you know, things just, just piled up. Um, so I think that um, companies are, are wanting that high employee engagement. They are terrified of be, being in a headline. And so I think we can leverage this to our benefit to, you know, raise issues where we don't feel we're able to do our best work and we feel like we're in some kind of hostile work environment. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping that our HR teams are more and more, by the way, adept at spotting when it's a bias issue as well, because those, those are things mm-hmm. that we're, we're not good at spotting all of that. And, you know, when you're yeah. a woman and you're complaining about bias historically, like nobody gave you the time of day, right? Or they brushed it under the rug or they made you sign you know, like the Google employees were complaining about, they all were, you know, signed the arbitration agreement so that they literally couldn't mm-hmm. talk about how they were treated. I mean, it's, so it's yeah. still going on to this day. And this is why employees are kind of finding their voice and saying, you know, this is not, this is not okay because we can't change the system if we can't talk about what's happening to us and we can't find each other and we can't organize in a community and we can't influence our employer. I mean, at some point, employers can only, you know, crank down on people for so long before it becomes an issue of retention and, you know, being able to have the best and brightest and have the best products and services. And, you know, I think the bottom line is going to suffer is suffering in toxic cultures. The, the, the price is going to become too great. Um, and this is going to have to be something that's on everybody's radar screen. If it's not already, I, I, I don't, I would be very concerned about companies that just are nowhere on this whole conversation because they're going to fall behind uh-huh. and it's going to be much worse trying to catch up if they ever catch up. Mm. Wow. It, it's funny because um, I had thought I wanted to tackle this in the four phases that you laid out, but we kind of did <laughs> somewhat organically. You, know, you talked about that. I mean, it seems like we pretty much went through the idea of unaware, aware, active and advocate uh, without intending to, or, but just you yeah. know, for the sake of, of uh, you know, bringing this together in a linear way, can you kind of tie those all together for us? Yes, I'm really glad you asked. So the second book, which is out in August 2019, 
is, uh, is based on four stages of the inclusive leader continuum. So first stage is unaware. Um, I called it apathetic, but I heard that it was a bit too judgy. So I changed it to unaware, um, <laughs> but un- lack of awareness can be apathy in its way, um, uh, and can cause the same amount of harm. And so un- um, being unaware is that like, I don't think there's a problem. I, I, I think I'm well-intended. I probably have a higher estimation of myself than is realistic or true. Um, and, or diversity is somebody else's job. And honestly, that characterizes a lot of people. Um, so the goal is to move from unawareness to awareness. So to that, that transition is, okay, I'm going to, I know there's a problem. I'm not going to deny there's a problem or a difference between my experience, somebody else's experience. I'm going to start to educate myself about wording and language and uh, the experience and the, what the research says about different people in my workplace and what I can do. But I'm going to do that kind of through reading and consuming media and getting feedback from colleagues that care about my development. Um, and I might be very private in my sort of striving to be aware at stage two, um, because this next stage is activation. So what do you do with that awareness and everything you learned? in that second stage. In the third stage, as you activate is where you take that awareness and you start to practice and you start to use that language. You start to be more public about uh, showing up as an inclusive leader proactively, purposely. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to ask for forgiveness, probably. Um, You're going to have to get back on the horse and do it again and try it again. I mean, it's like, you know, building your competency with anything else. It's the same thing. And, um, it's pretty, it's pretty tough at active because, you know, there's a lot of risk these days and a lot of scrutiny to what we've been talking about today. All eyes are on leaders in particular. Mm -hmm. Like, how does he behave? What do they say? And does it resonate? And are they being authentic? And did they get this word wrong? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of attention on this. So it's a perilous stage. However, I try in the book to indicate how important it is and to equip people with how to start small, Mm -hmm. take a short, take a small step do it privately, practice, don't like go wild and take a lot of risks because as you're developing this muscle, you don't want to go run a marathon without having trained for it and built up to it. You're going to hurt yourself. (laughs) So same is true with being an inclusive leader. And then the final stage is advocacy or advocate, which is um, the people who don't care, who are bold, who are brave, who speak truth to power, who are looking at that systems question, not just the individual question like we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. who are really who are unafraid to challenge people with power. And also often they have power. So they're, they're challenging people in their own echelon as well to address kind of the norms and the business as usual, like the assumptions that, that permeate every organization. And they're, they're just, they're unafraid. Um, they don't care. They don't ask for permission. Mm-hmm. And I know a bunch of those people, they give me a lot of hope. Um, they're, they're inspirational. Um, they're using their voice every day. They're, they're sort of, they never run out of energy to educate, to teach, to support. They're always think, seeing things through a diversity lens. And, uh, you know, there, there are executives that are like this. You know, there are some CEOs like Mark Benioff at Salesforce, one of my favorites. He's incredible. And he's, um, he's looked at pay equity in his org. And is in an, and in every org that he's acquired <laughs> at Salesforce, yeah. which means he inherits all of their pay gaps and then has to true them up again. And he talks about it. He's public about it. He said, here, we have this problem. I, it, I could not tolerate it. We need to make a change. Here's what I'm doing about it short term. Here's what I'm doing about it long term. And I invite you, other CEOs, to come on in and do the same thing because this is the way we're going to change it. 
that's advocate level behavior. He's really incredible. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights. So I have one last question for you, uh, which I know you've heard me ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, I think it's uh, humility and courage. Mm. If I could answer two things, it's it's the knowing I'm a learner and I never stop being a learner, but it's also the courage to put yourself out there to, you know, be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, to me, those are the leaders that are really changing things around them uh, on a day-to-day basis. And um, honestly, it's, it's the ultimate creative act because you are having to constantly create who you are. You know, you're having to recreate who you are. You're having to reinvent, you know, how you show up in the world based on what's happening in the world. And that's, I think that's the ultimate creativity, right? Is to develop something either yourself or whatever is around you to, to synchronize with the moment that you're living in Mm -hmm. and then add, add something important to it and drive something that hasn't existed if it weren't for you. And gosh, I I think, you know, you do that so beautifully. (laughs) You are doing that. And I, and I think a lot of us aspire to do that, but what are you adding into this, into the soup? that is today in this world, in this country. And, uh, and how are you making sure you're uncomfortable on a regular basis? Because that's what generates creativity. Mm. Amazing. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Awesome. So the book is called how to be an inclusive leader. It's out mid August. Uh, it's on Amazon. I'm doing the audiobook as well. That was really important to me for, uh, my community of people with disabilities and all of the readers and listeners that I have. So please, if you prefer to listen, it will be there for you. Uh, and I'm in social media. I'm at Jennifer Brown on Twitter, believe it or not. 10 years ago, I grabbed my name. I am at Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram and then uh, Jennifer Brown Consulting in Facebook and LinkedIn. So I'm <laughs> kind of everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Excellent. And For everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.